0: Yes. Hello, my name is Sean Peterbutch and I'm back to review episode three of the book of Boba Fett, entitled The Streets of Morse Espa." obviously available for streaming right now, launched on Wednesday night for us here in Australia. And the plot of this week's episode, well, it has thickened somewhat, with tensions mounting as the jockeying for control of Tatooine continues between parties whose interests are openly declared and those who are yet to reveal themselves, in episode three of the book of Boba Fett, our titular hero takes to the streets of Mos Espa to gain a greater understanding of the politics and state of play that have paralyzed his efforts to date. Since Jabba's death, the uh, the region has fallen under the control of three families, while the inhabitants scratch and scrape out an existence at the expense of one another. If Boba is to establish himself, he will need to unite or dissolve these factions, win over more followers to his cause, and overcome a criminal element even more dangerous than the huts, For by episode's end, it is revealed that the duplicitous Mok shayes the mayor of Moss Espa, has actually promised control of the region to the Pike Syndicate. But why? So, before we continue, what is the Pike Syndicate? And it is interesting that the show would go here, because in a lot of ways it does make perfect sense, but for the casual viewer who isn't au fait with who they are or what they are or what they do or their place in the story, it would be a bit kind of like, oh, who, who are these? Who's these people? I thought they were just kind of just inhabitants of this this planet that were terrorising the Tuscans. No, they're part of a much bigger picture, and that was obviously hinted at last week and has come very much into focus this week. So as for the, who they are, we probably need to talk about where they've come from, but um, but it certainly is interesting that they would go to these guys because they are kind of the perfect foil for the huts what used to be there you know what wants to be there moving forward you know what's standing in the way of Boba Fett um, properly taking control of the region so it's i think it's a good storytelling decision but effectively they were created by George Lucas back in 2007 i think initially they were from like a um, a discarded or not used sketch or a potential Jedi, if you can imagine, the uh, the art departments are probably always coming up with new and strange um, sketches and ideas and looks for any manner of alien species. And um, the sketch that would eventually become the Pikes, I think, was like a Jedi or a sketch of a Jedi, um, but went unused. And as happens, I mean, there's a great great documentary um, on on Ralph Macquarie which is on YouTube. You can watch it. It's absolutely outstanding. Ralph was very much the, uh, the eye, you know, very much the the man that created the look and the feel of Star Wars and his his work is felt as keenly today as it was back when Lucas first commissioned him to, to realise some words on a page and turn them into images um, and those images are, are absolutely iconic. His, his sense of movement, his sense of drama and style and, and, and whatnot is just absolutely outstanding. Um but, you know, Ralph McQuarrie would, would sketch something up and Dave Filoni said we would always go back to it. We'd go down into the archives and the same thing for Doug Chang, who was the um, the art director, uh, production designer type on um, uh, the first two prequels and has come back into the fold at Lucasfilm somewhat recently. They'd always go back to Ralph and the idea was he would sketch something, and he'd draw something, and even if it wasn't used for that particular film um, or that particular creature design, it was so good that it would often be repurposed down the line, as a as a background, as a as a vista, as a creature, as a as a ship, he is a phenomenal, phenomenal artist. And in much that same way, you know that that initial sketch for what might have maybe been a Jedi was repurposed to become um, a, a creature called the Pikes, um, which made their debut. I think it was in like season five of the Clone Wars, um, and they're basically like you know, not to be trifled with sort of criminal syndicate, effectively. Um, you know, their, their time in the in the Star Wars canon of late, you know, has, has gone a great way to, to casting them as sort of intergalactic gangsters. Um, you know, they've got interests all across the galaxy. They're massive movers and shakers uh, in, in pretty much every corner of the galaxy. You know, we saw them first in that episode of Clone Wars where, you have to bear with me, it's been a while since I saw it, but um, Count Dooku posing as Darth Tyrannus, hired them to shoot down sifo ship, which they did, killing him. Um, but just as a, to, I suppose, protect their own interests, the pikes uh, recovered um, Sifo-Dyas' aid from the ship and held him captive for like 10-odd years, um, just as some insurance or an insurance policy against this this dark figure, um, unbeknownst to Dooku slash Tyrannus, who would go to... Um, the Pike homeworld, and effectively he would try to kind of recover him or kill him, finish the job, etc. He would end up killing the Pike's leader. Anakin and Obi Wan were there for that particular skirmish um, during the Clone Wars. Uh, or sorry, should I say it after the Clone Wars? During the Clone Wars, no, they they kind of teamed up with Darth Maul and were, were part of his sort of shadow collective um, that had a hand or you know a, a role to play in the overthrow of uh, of Mandalore. They were involved in that. Uh, they run the Spice Mines of Kessel, um, which we saw in Solo. Um, so they are, you know, relatively speaking, even though a recent addition, um, a relatively important addition in a, in a lot of the background sort of manoeuvring and, and political kind of stuff that's been going on in Star Wars now for you know, nearly 10 years. Um, so it it's only makes sense that they would potentially have a bigger role at this opportunity. They were never going to be the bad guys as such in a Solo film. Um, there was never room for them to be significant bad guys in a Clone Wars series. Um, I know they've been hinted at here and there, but it kind of makes sense, given the subject matter of the Book of Boba Fett. If you're looking for a fresh antagonist, well, yeah, it makes sense that it's them. So um, that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Um, And ultimately, the other aspect of that is we keep getting shown the why and the how you know, of the tribes of Tatooine or the various competing interests, whether it be criminals or ground level or the like, um, you know, the mayor. But I think what this is kind of showing us is that when push comes to shove, the way that Bobba operates, um, the respect he's trying to build and will hopefully, you know, ultimately command from his perspective will lead to, you know, when the conflict comes to a head, we will know why... They back him. So the Pikes are coming to town. They're not coming to town for a civil kind of meeting. They're coming to town to take what they believe is theirs, what's been promised to them by the mayor. For for whatever reason, I'm sure it'll unfold. Um, Probably resources, Spice and the like. But when push comes to shove, I think that Bobber will have formed an alliance with these previously disparate, separated groups, and they will, with their collective might, Sort of go head to head with this bigger criminal enterprise. So, I think in the coming weeks we'll see, and he'll be shown to be stressing to the three families of Mos Espo, who were explained to us in this episode. They, after the fall of Jabba, each took a section of the city. I think he'll come to talk to them about how they can't defeat this threat alone. The Pikes won't deal them all in; they'll cut them all out. So the only way to retain a slice of what you have or anything that you have currently is if we team up. Uh, I think that'll be the way it'll go. Um, I think we'll go into the chicken salads, I suppose, what we liked about the episode. I keep harping on about it, but but character, um, a lot of show, don't tell, it's what we need to see. It's not good enough to simply tell us something is a particular way. Show us. And they've done a really good job thus far of showing us that Boba Fett is a character worth investing in. Um, You know, even... In the, in the first part of the episode um, when asked by his droid voiced by Matt Berry of course he's asked, um, he asks him why would he be insulted by the mention of Jabba's name and this idea of being like, insecure about it or you know, jealous or petty or whatever and it's just a, for me anyway it was a really small example but a good, good example of he's not those who have come before him in personality or perspective he, he's not that insecure sort of figure, um, certainly not one to kind of be jealous. And he, and he mentions, you know, Jabba's dead. You know, to be worried about speaking his name, um, which was nice. And then the other part of that is, it was this interesting idea that is his kindness sort of being taken advantage of. People are kind of misconstruing it as weakness. Like I oh, was sitting watching the episode, and I thought it reminded me of that line in Taken, where um, Liam Neeson's character Brian, he goes to the Albanian sort of. Safe house thing in Paris, and um, posing as a French sort of agent who's on the take, um, and he's talking about you know their arrogance, and he says you think that because we are tolerant we are weak, and it was this really kind of cool moment that yeah you you take my kindness or you take the respect I'm showing you the wrong way, and you you in turn show me disrespect. Um, and when we kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of that and the way that different tribes and different, different people in that region are kind of treating him, is that he's come in with a, different, a very different attitude than those who have come through in the past and in particular Jabba the Hutt, and that's being misconstrued as, well, you're a pushover, you're not, you're not the big guy, and, and because of that we can lean on you, we don't have to show you any respect. Um, so I kind of like that evolving dynamic that even though that is the case, he's sort of still unwavering, you know, it would be easy for him to make a statement, um, you know, to, to draw his weapons, you know, take someone out. Well, that'd be the easier thing to do. But again, just like last week when he didn't kill the prisoners, um, again, this week is that another good example of him not, uh, not bowing to perhaps the easy action to lean on violence, which, you know, other people in his position and potentially in the past uh, would have done. Um, again, the world... You know, episode two was, was all about the culture of the wastelands of Tatooine and particularly uh, Tusken Raiders. Well, episode three is about the politics that maintain an uneasy peace in the city. You know, the landscape has changed. It's a, It's almost, in a way, it's kind of making this funny. I don't know if it's intended or not, but at the moment the series is sort of making, you know, a commentary. You occasionally hear people talk about this, that for lawless corners of the earth you almost need a tyrant to control them like nobody wants saddam hussein to be running the show but the way he runs the show is sort of the only way to establish a very sort unacceptable level of order um but it is more order than when pe- someone like that is gone so jabba ruled with fear he ruled not with respect be ruled with fear and an iron fist and that kept everything in line. Things weren't good, but they were under control. You don't want that kind of figure. But when they're gone, you notice the vacuum. They mentioned that word. You notice the vacuum that their absence creates, um, you know, socially, politically, etc. And people kind of tripping over each other to, to take a little bit of ground themselves, seeing opportunities that didn't previously exist. Because if they even thought about acting on them, the repercussions would be just, just be dire for them. Um you know, we're obviously told that Bib Fortuna, since stepping into Jabba's shoes, wasn't able to create or cultivate a level of respect or fear that Jabba certainly did. Um, and because of that, had made kind of uneasy alliances with, with those three families that have stepped in to control sections of um, Mos Espa. Um, and then the flow on effect of that is that without that big kingpin at the top, the people have actually grown a bit bold. They've actually kind of gotten a bit of swagger and a bit of attitude back, and they're willing to push back on established, um, or the establishment, or, or figures of law and order, you know, such as they are in that town. Um, and because they you know the established order of and the rhythms of the way that Moss Espo operates have been disturbed, and some sort of use that as the opportunity to muscle in and increase their holdings, to take more ground, well, Others have used it to disrespect that previously established order. Um, Some changes obviously would have been for the better, some aren't. There was a cool moment, you know, Stephen Root um, cameos as a kind of a profiteering businessman jacking up the cost of resources, for instance. He sees that opportunity and the lack of oversight um, sort of to to feather his own nest. Um, And even though... So this is a good example. Even though Boba was back in town and making a claim to be the uh, daimyo, know, the, the boss or the don of the region, the people need convincing that he's worth listening to. And because of that, they'll test the boundaries to kind of find where they are with him. He, has, he hasn't crossed them yet himself. He's been able to kind of win everyone over. But there was a cool line where um, the robot you know, at the start, I can't, can't remember the droid's name, but he says, everyone's waiting to see what kind of leader you are. And I just thought that was that cool bit where, you know, we're going to talk about the little the gang he sort of interacts with later and, and folds into his operation. But there's that moment where he comes across them and they show him no respect. And again, that was that interesting kind of dynamic of, they know who he is, but they don't respect him yet. He hasn't given them a reason to respect him and they're not going to do it just based purely on reputation. So, um, the interesting thing with the pikes and the world and them coming into it is that does that mean that Amelia Clark is coming as well? So she she plays Kira obviously in solo. She is alive at this point in time. Um, she would have crossed paths uh, with you know Boba Fett post solo uh, additional material. I think it was Bounty Hunters, a, a comic book, had her um, intercepting and then trying to sell Han in Carbonite. Um, this is a very modern thing to do, isn't it? To surprise the audience with a kind of an undeclared cameo. Um, and while she's not, like, she's, she's obviously known as, um, you know, Khaleesi and Daenerys, you know, in, uh, in Game of Thrones. I mean, she's in the Star Wars canon. It would be a cool kind of cameo. It wouldn't be anything to the extent of, like, a Luke Skywalker turning up. But from a narrative point of view, it would be interesting because, you know, it's been 15-odd, you know, probably 20 odd years nearly since we last saw what she was doing in solo and in that time um, she had taken over you know Crimson Dawn which is you know a pretty big rival syndicate in and of itself so again um, it'd be interesting to see it feels like that's what they're kind of hinting at is that she'll that she'll turn up um, so it'll be interesting to see if that is in fact how it unfolds and then more, does that sort of hint at, you know, the the, the Godfather-style sort of five families set up where you've got the Pikes and Crimson Dawn and, you know, Black Sun, the Huts, et cetera, the these sort of controlling interest or syndicates slash factions that run different sections of the galaxy and um, want to claim this newly up-for-grab slice of that galaxy. Um, so I'd be surprised if Kira didn't figure, to be honest, at this point in time, but... Um, There are enough possibilities for them to explore without her, but I don't know, just given what they're leading or given what they're leaning into, it feels like that's what they're going to do. The Tuscan Raid is obviously less prominent this week. Um, Most of the episode took place in the kind of present timeline, um, whereas last week it was the, the other way around, and that probably makes sense just because they sort of might have served their purpose to the narrative up until this point in time, and given what unfolds in this episode kind of set up what comes next. So uh, Boba Fett goes obviously to collect tribute from the uh, the Pikes, sort of protection money for the region. Um, When he goes back to the Tuscan camp, it has been destroyed by that uh, biker group from last week. It's been burned to the ground um, and uh, all the Tuscans have been killed. So, I mean, it's sort of a cool last samurai moment in a a fun way that he's sort of the last of their tribe um that was sort of a nice sort of touch a nice kind of character building moment again that you know does he feel a sense of responsibility for this it was his presence and his teachings that sort of brought this fate upon them had he not intervened the way that he did um may things you know did they would they have played out differently would that uh would that uh, tr- um, biker group have felt emboldened to go and attack and seek revenge? Um, would they have been a target in that manner? You know, Were they sent by the Pikes to do it? So, you know, that's obviously sort of, what is it, um, five-ish years in the past. So there's certainly a, something to be gained that, you know, Bobber knows how the Pikes operate. Um, that group of them sort of betrayed him. Um, we haven't come across them in the present timeline. So what did he do to them? Um and I, yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting thought, actually, isn't it? that what would the repercussions be? Will Boba find out that that the, the biker gang acted alone? Were they under um, directive from the that Pike group um reporting back to their their leader, obviously? Um, because we've seen what grief and anger in a sense of sort of evening the score did to Anakin. when he he acted out against the the Tuscans, so how will Boba react? And then more than that, I think there were some cool themes of sort of isolation that he now feels again. You know, a sense of belonging that he'd hoped he might have taken away from him. And it's just another sort of relationship that, for him at least, doesn't end well. A lot of his relationships in this this space don't seem to end very positively for uh, the other party. Um... I liked the huts, we got another little glimpse of them this week, um, and that they don't want war and their rationale being that you know war is as they say, war is bad for business. <clears throat> I love that they are effectively <coughs> business people. you know, they have a racket, they have an empire and they have a turf, but they crunch the numbers on what is worth what, you know, how much to protect it, how much to obtain a new <coughs> – sorry, I'm losing my voice – how much to obtain a new territory or how much to retain the territory that they have. You know, it's almost like they do a cost-benefit assessment. And I sort of like the implication, too, that when the region is promised to the pikes, the huts, as big and as powerful as they are, might not want a bar of it. They, they might look at it and go, oh, they might be too big or they're too well-resourced or we can't go up against that. It's, not just, it's just not worth it. Even if we were to win control of the region, what it would cost us to do that isn't worth what the region is ultimately worth to us. So I kind of like again the political machinations of that and and the perspective that we'll we'll probably see unfold. They might not think that. Obviously, we don't know just at this point in time. Um, there's a, a group of sort of like greases, you know, intergalactic uh, greases again that. Um, Bobba kind of folds into his operation, his, his uh, growing operation at this point in time. And I like that when he came upon them, Stephen Root's character had asked him to um, settle, it, uh, settle an issue he'd had. <clears throat> and this was a test of him, you know, I'll give you my loyalty if you help me out. And he goes into town to get some money off them or scare them straight or the like. He comes across them. They freely admit to stealing water from this guy but because it's too expensive and it was this fun kind of thing i thought where the kids didn't respect him they knew exactly who he was and it was playing with this idea the same idea they were sort of playing with in um, the force awakens with who is luke skywalker and what does luke skywalker mean to a generation of not just fans watching the movie who who haven't grown up you know, in, in an era where Star Wars was a big, big deal, but in the world as well, where he'd been gone for long enough that his legend, had sort of, or his star had faded, and his his name had passed into legend, I should say. So there's this cool thing again with Boba Fett that the audience know a bit more about him, the audience are learning more about him through this show, but these kids that he comes across in the street, yeah, we know who you are, but... I don't care about that. I don't care about you. We've got other problems here. So I sort of liked that again. Um, and it told Bobber that, that the problems on the ground, you know, street level were greater than just law and order. Like, as silly as it sounds, I sort of chuckled to myself because it was like Moss Hesper's got a uh, cost of living problem as well where water is, what did they say? They go selling us um, a week's worth of water for a month's worth of, you know, wages. Um, and again, crucially, he wins. He wins them over. He tells them that he'll give them a job. He'll fold them in. He get, takes their their loyalty because loyalty at this moment is more important to him than anything else. Um, you know, gaining soldiers for the fight that is coming. And another great example of his character that he won't be given directives. He was sent out to accomplish one thing, but upon assessing the situation came to his own judgment. He was brought in to address their stealing water, but quickly realized that action or violence against them was not the best course for him to pursue. Um, And he he reassessed, as his own man, and he made ultimately the right decision by the greatest number of people. Helping this guy who was ultimately profiteering and overcharging locals for a particular resource was not going to curry him more favor than, well, yeah, understanding that is pretty rich of you, isn't it? That's not great. I'll defend the interests of the many, not the few, um, which was good. Um, I'm not 100% sure about the Grease's Vespers, though. They were riding kind of like space Vespers. Don't know. Don't know if you can look tough riding a step through. Um, The other fun element sort of later in the episode was the reintroduction of the Rancor, a new Rancor, and a little bit like the Tusken Raiders through episodes one and two. Um, Just, you know... Filling in some, filling in some lines, adding some definition to that sketch. We, we've understood since 1983 that the Rancor is just a big, mindless monster that will eat anything that's thrown its way, and that's just how it goes. Very effective as as that particular tool in a narrative. Um, but here again, well, we've just learned more about them. They're they're an emotional being. They're almost just like a big dog, like a big Labrador, you know. Uh, We're told that they imprint on the first beings that they see, Um, you know, stuff about their emotional sort of um, state of being as well. You know, Although they are bred to fight, um, they are a loyal creature. And um, there's this sort of cool thing where um, the Rancor trainer, who we'll get to in a moment, sort of mentions that um, the Witches of Dathomir would ride them. And Boba says, I would like to ride it, I would like to learn how to ride this thing, so... Every cowboy, every sheriff needs a horse. He's going to have a very, very big one. Um, again, a classic Western trope, a little bit like to Avatar. We, we've spoken in the past about that idea of him, um, whatever those freaking flying pterodactyl things that the, the Navi would ride, well, Jake Sully caught that, that big one, that crazy, you know, the massive one, <coughs> which was sort of like the queen of those flying creatures, and that gave him some... Um, a1 credit, you know, it gave him uh, a reputation that was important um, and a standing that was important to it within the tribe and obviously for anyone that they would be otherwise fighting. Dathomir, obviously a cool mention because um, that is where Darth Maul is from and his, uh, you know, mother, Mother Talzin and the witches out on Dathomir might be referring to them which was a cool little uh, nod and a wink at the camera which is nice. Um, so he's got a new rancor and a new steed from the looks of it. So as the season goes on, I'm sure we'll see him riding uh, towards a conflict or into town on a rancor, which Boba Fett, I mean, it'll probably be a pretty cool visual. Um, And then lastly, Fennec Shand, who of course is Boba's lieutenant, I just wonder if she's being set up as a turncoat. There is no honour among thieves, after all. And I just thought as um, the black, you know, the big Wookiee, Christanum, Christan, Christanum? I wasn't 100% sure on the pronunciation, but the big, nasty, predator looking Wookie came obviously to attack Bobber and attempt uh, to take his life. Um, and the Gamorian guards defended him. Bobber's new you know, Vespa gang came and helped him out as well. Uh, they've moved into the palace. But Fennec Shan didn't turn up until the fight sort of made its way through. Through the uh, the palace down to the throne room, I sort of wonder, where were you? You are being set up as some kind of classic mob, you know, trope? Is it that it's it's always a member of the family who lets the enemy in or sells someone out? It's always uh, knowingly or otherwise, for self interest or otherwise, um, they've gotten to her or the like. I just wonder if that's what's being set up ultimately. That um, the, uh, the enemies are inside the walls as such and and it'll be revealed that she can't be trusted and she's uh, actually working for the pikes or the pikes have gotten to her. So that'll be interesting again to watch unfold in the coming weeks. Um, as for the chicken shits, not not too many. I think there's just a, a bit of a watch this space um, with regard to red herrings and, and I'm very wary of this given that we're still, relatively speaking, so early in the narrative but I'm just worried we're getting a lot of them. So initially... You know, the season kinda of starts off and who's trying to kill Boba Fett, who's after him, you know, it's it's the mayor, the mayor, you know, hired me. And then the mayor's like, No it isn't, it's the Huts and then the Huts walk in with a Wookiee sort of bodyguard and they're threatening Boba Fett and then it's No, we actually aren't the threats. It's someone else and it is the mayor again. Like you can't you can't keep doing the bait and switch again and again when we're only at that point, sort of two and a half episodes into the season. Um so I hope they aren't kind of going for that word that ruined the last Jedi, you know, subversion, subverting your expectations, is that we've got you thinking it's these guys. No, it's not them. And you're kind of going, okay, well who is it? Is it these guys? And you're like, oh, I don't know. You was kinda of telling me it was the, the huts earlier, but now you're telling me it's not the huts, it's it's the pikes. But is it gonna be the pikes? Or is it gonna be the huts again? you kind of go well you're telling the story i mean it's you'll make it as difficult for you to tell as you know you do for yourself i can only sit here and watch it so i don't know i just think that there are some examples in the past of you know similar type properties you know indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull got way too wrapped up in you know um double crosses and triple crosses and and you just by the end of it you just I, like, I don't care. Like, Ray Winston, oh, he's Mac, he's he's a friend, and then he's a foe, but then he's a friend again, but then he's a foe again. You're like, I actually don't care. By the third one. Going, I don't give a shit. If he believes him again or thinks, like, you're insane. Um, and it just makes your character look dumb. But uh, Pirates of the Caribbean did it as well, where they were all double-crossing each other, and it was just got tired. It just went, like... Oh, oh, well, it all come out by half and 45 minutes' time when the movie ends it'll be revealed what the situation is, so I'm not going to get too invested in it at the moment. Um, Some odds and ends uh, that I sort of liked or noticed. Obviously, cameos this week were a bit of fun. Danny Trejo was a sort of a a hut um, family lackey or sort of rancor trainer. They might have just hired him. He might have just been freelance. They might have just gone down to the market and, you know, he could hook them up with a rancor and he's just the trainer. Um, Of course, he would get the gear going to, you know, the uh, Robert Rodriguez connection he has. Um, not only is uh, Danny a brand spokesperson for Old El Paso, you know. not only did he do time for drug dealing and armed robbery, uh, robbery way back when, um, he was also in Spy Kids, you know, Machete, etc. Uh, it's actually an interesting story if you want to read up about Danny Trejo. It's, um, yeah, it's like a really compelling sort of interesting, challenging, um, I was almost going to say inspirational. I don't know if I'd go that far. I stopped myself before committing to that but it's certainly an interesting life that he's led you know with a lot of really um really challenging ups and downs and prison time and reforming his ways and you know going on to have a have a, have a good career in hollywood now um which is you know a credit to him uh, Stephen root as i mentioned um plays that you know profiteering businessman um you would have seen him in a bunch of stuff dodgeball office space um i love the fact that of late he's uh munro fuchs in hbo's barry and he's absolutely outstanding in that um there was another little nod potentially to terrace cassie which uh for people of a particular age you'll remember that as a terrible star wars sort of mortal combat game from kind of like the mid 90s Um, yeah just not good not good at all but favreau must have been a fan because um, we had a look at it in season two of the Mandalorian. I think it was in the first episode. And then it was kind of like, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was a little nod again where, um, Chris Stannum, who, again, I don't know if I'm saying that right. The big Wookiee, uh, was fighting, you know, the Gamorrean guards. And he was sort of like, this is sort of what Terrace Cassie was, was this silly Mortal Kombat thing where these Wookiees would fight Gamorreans and Han Solo would fight Boba Fett. And it was just Mortal Kombat, um, but like I said, it was funny having been not really any mention in of it for twenty odd years. We certainly got one of him Mandalorian, and then maybe another little tip of the cap uh, with this one here. I like that the huts were uh, carried around like Xerxes in three hundred. They they carry him well they carry the twins around like uh, on the big float. Uh, I thought that was sort of you know amusing. Again, obviously we saw that last week, but <laughs> I was sort of I just thought to myself, yeah, it's like Xerxes, isn't it? Big float. How do they get up to the palace, just carrying him around? Are they carrying him across like hundreds of miles of barren desert? Hmm. It's interesting. Get a get like a levitation, have it float. Uh, there's a cool flashback of Camino again, which is obviously building to some kind of character reveal. Um, can't help but think it's isolation, and you know he's always watching the slave one, obviously with his father depart Camino, um, sort of leaving him there on his own, which is what he'd been since the age of ten, obviously after his father's death. Um, so I'm sure that'll come to a head, you know, before season's end, but, but it, it feels at the moment like it could be building to a nice character beat. Um, speaking of Kamino, there was a cool little mention um, of Tatooine, you know, was once upon a time covered in water. Um, so however many millions of years previously, that was a nice little moment. Um, and then the cyborg sort of gang member with the, the one kind of eye, um, another little odds and ends moment. I like that he used an intergalactic phone booth to ring uh, Boba and Fennec Shan toward the end of the episode. He sort of, I thought, he's running up to this thing on the wall. I was like, that, that is a phone booth. And I made a video call, so that's pretty cool. And it made me wonder if um, sort of Moss Esper's local state-owned telco has taken a page out of Telstra's books and you can make free phone calls from it because he certainly didn't, didn't pay, didn't look like he paid for the phone call. So maybe that's just good CSR from Tatooine Telecom to you know, look after the locals. If you need to make a phone call, emergencies, got you covered. Um, So, yeah, so, I mean, ultimately, sort of just wrapping up the app, I mean, a shorter one, 38 minutes, so back down, you know, sort of 12, probably 12-ish minutes, 15 minutes without credits from last week's episode. Um, Probably a bit of a, I don't know, I'll probably give it a B minus. Probably the third of the three episodes to date, I thought episode two's been the standout of the three so far, followed by the first, and then now, now the third, um, and and that's probably just more because it's it's construction than anything else. It's it's a bit more mystery box, um, not a lot of concrete stuff coming out of it. You know, more questions and more setup, which is fine, at episode three, um, but because of that, you sort of leave with tidbits of information to kind of lead the way rather than a solid heading. Um, that's not a bad thing. But it's just sort of somewhat wary at episode three that we kind of, we had, we had established a potential antagonist, and now we've kind of gone back to square one by saying, no, it's not them, it's these guys. So the momentum that the, the, the hut thread had kind of built up, or the air's been taken out of that. It's not that the, the, the huts are better or worse than the pikes, but you are kind of gone, okay, all right, well, we'll realign, and what does this mean moving forward? Okay, it's these guys. Are these guys the bad guys? And just from a storytelling point of view, that's an interesting thing where you're kind of asking, you're asking your audience to kind of shift you know, pretty regularly. And and like I said, we'll just wait wait and see how that plays out. Um, so yeah, so B minus. I thought it was still a good episode. Um, perhaps not as strong as last week, but some interesting thematic things moving forward. Just as the uh, the political landscape of Tatooine and particularly Mos Espa begin to take shape, um, I'm sure we'll see in the coming weeks that uh, sort of five families meeting um, that we've seen in a bit of the promotional material where Bobber, I think, will lay down the case to unite and stand together against what's coming. So very good. Um, if you've enjoyed you know, what the, the show's been doing so far, like I keep saying, definitely get in touch. I'd love to have a chat with you guys about what you're making of the book of Bobber Fett through three episodes, what you think may happen in episode four and beyond. Um, thanks so much for listening. We'll do it all again next week.